welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Welcome back, episode nine. Here we are again to prevent the suboptimal. If you don't get that joke, you should go back and listen to episode eight. Megan, say hi to the people. Hello, everyone. All right, so we are on our second episode about the addiction inoculation by Jessica LaHaye. Today we're talking about not my kid, who gets addicted and why, which I guess I should have read like not my kid, and then tipping the scales of addiction, protective factors that outweigh risk. So we're gonna get right into it because we know that you are a busy parent. She starts out by saying addiction exists in all ethnicities, socioeconomic groups, and geographic regions of the United States. Just really, none of us can look at our children and say, that's not going to happen to me. We all have to be aware of it. And then she says this, Megan, which shocks me. Kids consume over 10% of the alcohol sold in this country. That's crazy. Yeah, I could not believe it. In any given month, between 8% and 33% of American middle and high school students drink some alcohol. 10% take some illegal drug. 18% drink enough to count as a binge. 8% drive after drinking, and 20% have ridden with another person who has been drinking. Mm, Gosh, I don't like those statistics. I don't either, because I also think about how we have Uber, we have Right, there's options. Most of the parents I know have had the conversation with their kids of, hey, if you're in a sticky situation, call me. I will pick you up. I will not ask any questions. Right. I will drive you home. But I think that our actions have to back up that talk, or they don't really believe they can trust us yeah i have a couple of friends who have like a family uber account and they've told their kids basically that like if you don't want to call me then at least use the family uber account i won't question it yeah for sure so for sure yeah. i'm loading that app on everybody's phone right when they're right. out and about doing things so then she goes on to say as long as we're telling ourselves not my kid we're not really able to do the true work of prevention so i love this kind of wake-up call. She says, but it's only when we can admit, yes, maybe even my kid, that we can begin to see our own children with clear eyes and learn to recognize the risk factors that cause them to get tangled up in this dangerous behavior. I love that. Um, She says, no matter where they come from, children share a predictable list of developmental stages, life experiences, and traits that lead them to seek out, experiment with, and become dependent on drugs and alcohol. When researchers ask kids why they drink or take drugs, many report they do it to feel better, to relieve emotional and physical pain, or to concentrate, relax, decrease anxiety, sleep, and cope with their problems. And then she goes on to talk about a kid who self-medicates his untreated hyperactivity disorder. Given the choice between living in his chaotic brain, a wash in his emotional pain, or numbing himself into oblivion, David chooses oblivion. Mm -hmm. So... Yep. Good to look at that for sure. So in her effort to talk to us about who gets addicted and why, she talks about genetics. And there's a psychiatrist and substance abuse researcher who says substance abuse disorders are complex genetically influenced conditions where genes explain up to 60% of the picture. The other 40%, he concludes, is to be found in an individual's environment and epigenetics, which is the connection between environment and Mm. genetics. 60-40... Yeah. That's uh, not odds I'm going to take a chance on without a lot of conversations. I'll say that. And then epigenetics. Addiction is not passed on to new generations solely through DNA. Researchers in the field of epigenetics, the study of the chemical processes that influence how genes express themselves in the body, 
have found that genes can be turned off or turned up in response to our mm, life experience. That's interesting. Yeah. So she goes on to talk about addiction at home. She says, in the words of just about every addiction expert, addiction is a family disease, both because of the genetic and epigenetic footprint of the disease and its tendency to negatively impact the lives of everyone in the family. Yep. So then she goes on to talk about adverse childhood experiences. They talk about this as ACE, right? The acronym is ACE. There's a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors that use an ACE survey to determine the path of treatment when they begin to see a young person or an adult. I love this quote too. She quotes this director of the Center for Addiction and Science at the University of Tennessee. And he believes we should not call drug and alcohol seeking behavior addiction. We should call it ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. Oh, wow. Because that's usually what it is, right? So she goes on to say kids with higher, people with higher numbers of ACE, adverse childhood experiences in their childhood, are more likely to engage in high-risk behaviors. That just makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Adverse childhood experiences are the main determinant of the health and social well-being of the nation, is the summary from one study that she quotes. This reminds me of something I read in the book called Big Potential by Sean Acor. He talks about how there's a tribe of Inuit people whose greeting when they meet one another is, how are the children? Hmm. And then if everything is fine, they say, the children are well. So the marker for that community of how people are doing is, how are the children? Yeah. And so when I read that, adverse childhood experiences are the main determinant of the health and social well-being of the nation. I thought about that community of people who use that as their marker. And then she talks about ACEs further. She says, ACEs and the toxic stress they create are astonishingly common. 67% of the population had at least one category of ACE, and 12.6% had four or more categories of ACEs. What's more, the subjects of the ACE study were solidly middle-class San Diego, 70% Caucasian, and 70% college-educated. Wow. So, yeah. That is not a protective factor against adverse childhood experiences. In most of the studies that discuss adverse childhood experiences, they use words like surprisingly common because Mm -hmm. a lot of people have them in their past. So then she quotes um, Elizabeth Soyek, who's the director of the Stigma and Resilience Among Vulnerable Youth Center at the University of British Columbia. She says, if we could eliminate all violence, bullying, sexual and physical abuse, sexual harassment, we could prevent 66% of binge drinking in 12 to 18 year olds. Sexual abuse accounts for 20% of binge drinking and sexual harassment for 50%. Wow. Again, it's looking at the bigger picture of Mm -hmm. what we can do about this problem, not just for our own children, but for all children. Yeah. The CDC and Kaiser discovered a great dose relationship between ACEs and negative outcomes, meaning that the more adverse experiences a kid accumulates and the higher his or her ACE score, the higher the severity and intensity of the negative outcomes. So that just makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? The more adverse experiences you have, the more likely you are to fall into this way of self-medicating or self-dealing and coping, right? Then she goes on to talk about toxic stress and how kids are just so stressed out right now. And then she quotes a 2010 paper called The Kids Are Not All Right that was released by the American Psychiatric Association that details the stress affecting kids and indicates that it's causing more than emotional distress. It's causing physical symptoms like headaches and sleeplessness, symptoms that parents are failing to recognize as signs of anxiety. 
the stressing, helping kids learn to deal with their stress. And to me, this goes back to what we talked about in how to raise an adult, right? Yep. Like, what are we doing to their childhoods? Are we asking them to mortgage their childhoods and have this incredibly stressful experience so they can check off the checklist of getting into the best college and getting the best job or getting whatever we deem as their success, their life success, right? And then she talks about academic failure. Students who fail academically can sometimes move towards this kind of addiction. And she says, again, untreated attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in particular has been identified as a major risk factor for addiction. If you have a child who is challenged with that neurodiversity, it is something to pay attention to over the years. Absolutely. There are a lot of ways to successfully and legally treat ADHD that do not involve drug and alcohol abuse. And then she talks about how kids who believe their future will be better than their present do better across the board. Hope increases academic performance, graduation rates, career success, and happiness, and provides a psychological buffer from the effects of negative life events. Mm. So what can we say to our kids and to the children in our lives? To create hope. hope. Yeah, Yeah, to create hope. And then transitions, kids are most vulnerable to substance abuse during transition. So um, a move or transitions around the stages of maturation or life changes like divorce, death of a loved one, those are all things that can move a kid into a transition spot, which could lead to drug or alcohol use. And then this is interesting and I love it because she says, summer, even summer for all its fun and free play presents a heightened risk of substance abuse. And then she talks about how there's a lot of studies that show that summer is a more dangerous time for kids in terms of drug and alcohol abuse. And then she says this, which I completely agree with. As a parent, I love this data because it's specific. If I know that first time use is more likely to happen in the summer, I will be sure to spend more time talking about these four substances in the late spring and to discuss the specific risks of these four drugs. So marijuana, cocaine, LSD and ecstasy are used in the summer more frequently than any other time of the year. I agree with her completely. Yeah. When you give me data and specifics, yeah, I it's a plan. I can deal with yeah. that. Yep. And then later on in the book, we're going to go over. She talks about how to talk to your kids mm, about it. So that's good. That's we'll, great. We'll talk about that too, so you're not going into it blind. And here we are in the spring. It's pretty great good time. timing. Yeah. Then she moves into chapter five, where she talks about tipping the scales of addiction and taking a look at the protective factors that outweigh risk. So she talks about substance abuse in the home. First, she says, call in reinforcements. When one family member suffers from substance abuse, everyone needs emotional mental health support. So call in the reinforcements. Get your kid into counseling. Get the mental health support that they need. Banish secrets and shame. Mm -hmm. So family secrets cause problems. They're destructive and they tear families apart and make room for substance abuse. So no secrets and no shame. And again, the more we read these parenting books, the more we see this the theme thread, yep. right? Yep. Like shame. We've got to gatekeep shame as much yep. as we can for our kids. It's just so unproductive. Talk openly about your family risk. When kids are aware of their genetic predisposition for substance abuse, the knowledge can serve as a positive preventative factor. Keep addictive substances under lock and key. Alcohol, as well as narcotics and other prescriptions, should be kept away from kids. One third of teens see no problem with using drugs not prescribed for them, and one in four teens has misused a prescription drug. Half of the teens who admit to misusing prescription drugs report they acquired those drugs from their parents' medicine cabinet. 
If you must have opioids or other narcotics at home, purchase the storage safe and keep it locked. Get moving. Physical activity has been associated with lower prevalence of cigarette use and some harder drugs. And also, exercise is great for the body, for the brain. It's just a good thing. And then this one, you may or may not want to hear. <laughs> Get a pet. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> if your kid has been begging for a dog. Get uh, it. Yes, this author agrees with your kid. Uh, she says, human-animal interactions have been shown to improve behavior, mood, and interpersonal interactions, reduce symptoms of stress, such as raised cortisol levels, high blood pressure, and elevated heart rate, and to reduce negative behaviors such as aggression, enhance trust levels and empathy, and enhance learning. Time to get that dog your kid's been asking for. Also, dogs are better than people. Absolutely, they are. Okay. We're puppy pushers, though. Yes, we really are. Okay. Build kids' self-efficacy. Which we talked about this. Good inside, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mindset, it, too. Yeah. And how to raise an adult. All of these. <laughs> okay, so this is our fourth book to tell us we need to build self-efficacy in, our, in kids. <laughs> our kids. So we have to build their belief in themselves to, she says, to succeed, to regulate their thoughts, emotions, and life, and to cope with challenges in a positive way. She says self-efficacy is what gives kids a sense of control, agency, and hope even the, when the world around them feels out of control. She says people with a strong sense of self-efficacy are more likely to be optimistic, motivated, confident, competent, adaptive, resilient, flexible, goal-oriented, and self-driven. So remember, self-efficacy is the belief that you can accomplish and do what you need to do. Here are some practical ways parents can boost kids' perceptions of their own self-efficacy and help kids with low self-efficacy get back on the right path. So here's what she says. Start with yourself. Model, model, model. Model self-efficacy for yourself. And then she says this, start questioning your own assertions of I can't with I can't yet. yet. Yes. So she comes right in with growth mindset statements there. Believe in your children and make sure they know it. Tell them all the time. I think that this, it's important to note here too, not just saying, I believe in you, but saying, mm-hmm. I believe you can do this. Yeah. I believe you Be have specific. the power to do this. You have the skills to do this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Give kids skills. Praise alone won't give your child a sense of self-efficacy or competence. These things come from the actual experience of trying, doing, failing, trying again, and succeeding. Again, there's a common thread, mm-hmm. right? See one, do one, teach one, which is another way of saying I, I do, do we, we do, do, you do. do. <laughs> so again. Which we talked about in, I think, How to Raise an Adult. I think so too. Yeah. So again, a lot of the great suggestions in parenting are prevalent in every book yeah, that we read. they're not topic specific. They're not. It's kind of like when we talk about in education how good teaching is good teaching. Mm-hmm. What's good for our students with special needs is good, it's good for, for our all gifted kids. kids. Right. It's good for yeah, yep, totally. all of our kids. It's and these this... are like not complex notions either. Right. To teach our kids or how to impart these skills to our kids. Absolutely. And then she says, set individual and family goals with an eye toward learning, not accolades. So we do this as part of New Year's every year. I sit mm-hmm. down and ask everyone, what skills are you going to gain this year? What yeah. do you want to work on improving? What yeah. do you... You know, what are you going to set aside to make time to do this, these things that we're talking about? Be optimistic. Optimism is about more than seeing a glass is half full. It's a mindset that has a very real impact on physical and mental health. I love that too. And part of what she talks about here is helping kids modify the way they talk to themselves. So 
Instead of I'm bad, mm-hmm. I made a bad choice. Yeah. Instead of I'm stupid, it's I did not understand what I was supposed to do in class today. Yep. Right? It goes yeah, back to that. Self-talk's important. Yeah, that self-talk piece and then recognizing that not everything that happens in our lives is a trait of our humanity. Right. It's right? not defining. Yes, it doesn't have to define us. It can just be something that happens. And then make failure specific but generalize success. Mm. So... I did well in math class because I paid attention, moved towards school is going well because I'm doing all my assignments on time. So expand success past what they're doing, mm-hmm. but shrink failure to what Just specifically the yeah. was the problem. And then she says, be careful what you say, but even more careful in what you do. So again, we can talk about this stuff all day long. If we don't model it that way, we lose our power as parents. Be specific in your praise, which we've talked about that yep. with mindset and with good inside and maybe with how to raise an adult. Be honest in your praise. Again, don't blow a bunch of smoke mm-hmm. in mirrors. Yep. Don't pretend like everything's unicorn and rainbows when yep. it's not. And then don't go overboard with your praise, right? Which we talked about that too. Yep. If you try to go overboard with praise, kids know. Mm-hmm. She talks about the importance of health care, making sure your child has a regular well visit. Those well visits are often when pediatricians will do some of their screening, ask questions about things that allow them to get information. She also says protect kids' privacy and time alone with healthcare providers. So give your child, and especially adolescents, the privacy they need to answer screening questions honestly. Make sure they have time alone with their primary caregiver at the pediatrician's office to ask questions they may not want to bring up in front of Mm. their parents. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then she talks about school nurses as resources, school counselors as resources in that risk assessment. And then she talks about mindfulness and how we need to invite our children into developing a practice of mindfulness, but also how hard that is. It is. Like if you tell your kid, hey, we're going to take a, up a meditation habit. How's that going to go over? <laughs> we're going to start meditating, son. Yeah. You know? And she says, I know, it can be really difficult to make a case for mindfulness practices, which usually mean meditation or yoga, because the very word with its mom yoga connections begs for <laughs> teen mockery. Here's the thing, though. It works is what she says so she knows that she's asking us to do some stuff that the kids will think is cringy yeah cringe that's so cringe okay so she says here are some ways to promote mindfulness practices with your adolescent so she says you first you find a comfortable quiet distraction-free place you pay attention to your breath start your own mindfulness Mm -hmm. practice separate from your kid and then she says once you've got the idea Include your little kids. So if you're a parent of a little one who is listening to this, or little ones, or younger ones, include them now. Because the earlier they start, the less more normalized. cringe yeah. it is, as they would say. Adolescents get more choices. So they can either use the basic or little kid method, or they can try one of the ten bajillion other techniques out there. And she says she likes Siegel's Wheel of Awareness. I don't know, we'll have to look that up. I don't even know what that is. Apparently, Siegel has a great voice. And some kids would like their meditation sessions facilitated by voices other than their mothers. So that's reasonable. There you go. And then she says, if they won't try it, ask for a limited trial period or offer a trade. One week of daily 10-minute sessions together in exchange for dinner or a movie together. 
So she says she doesn't often advocate for extrinsic motivators because the evidence on that practice is crystal clear. They don't work over the long term. As a one-off to boost motivation or get somebody to try something for a short time, might be worth it. Yeah. And then she talks about reframing stress. And this is verified by a lot of studies too. It's not really our stress that's going to kill us. It's what we say to ourselves about about our stress, right? She says, help them control what they can and let go of the things that they can't, which that I feel like we have to model that too. (laughs) That is so much easier flung out as something to do versus actually doing it, right? And then practice emotional weightlifting, learning how to work through things and feel things. That's all part of it. And then she talks about sleep and how important sleep is and how sleep deprived our teenagers are. So she says we have to make sleep a priority. If parents don't prioritize sleep, neither will the kids. So there's that. Set the stage. She says at her house after dinner, they encourage, but as their kids get older, they don't always prevail, that screens go dark, music comes down a notch, and the house settles for at least an hour before bedtime. They prep ahead of time for the things they need for the morning. So they pack backpacks, make lunches, check the calendar, and look for permission slips, etc. And then head to their bedrooms so that are staged for sleep. So one of the kids likes a blackout curtain. The other needs white noise. They both fill water bottles before they head up for bed. So just yeah. kind of having a sleep ritual. Bedtime routine. Yeah. yeah. And then she says, be consistent. Catching up on the weekends doesn't make up for chronic lack of sleep during the for I think sure. that's something our kids need to hear over and over and over again, too, as they cram for tests and yep. stay up late doing this and that. Well, I'll just catch up on the weekend. Well, that's not actually that's how, how it works. sleep works. Yeah. So um, just important to note that. Okay, so we're going to pause there, and next episode we're going to talk about parenting for prevention, how to talk about it, starting the conversation, Mm. and then dealing with the friendship, peer pressure aspect of substance abuse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please remember, whatever you're facing in parenting, it won't always be this way. Have a great week.